Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about skin cancer with Dr. Kathleen Swosey. Dr. Swosey is an assistant professor of dermatology in the section of cutaneous oncology and dermatologic surgery at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about skin cancer. As a, as a professor of dermatology, you must see this a lot. Tell us how frequent it is and what kinds of cancer you see and really how bad it is or not so bad. So when we think about skin cancer, we can categorize it into two types. The first is the melanoma type of skin cancer, and the second is the non-melanoma type of skin cancer. And when we're talking about frequency, the non-melanoma type of skin cancer is far and away more common. There's over 5 million cases of non-melanoma skin cancer diagnosed in the U.S. every year, and that is actually rising. Of this type of skin cancer, there are two main types. The first is basal cell carcinoma, which accounts for about 80% of the non-melanoma skin cancers that are diagnosed. And the second most common type is squamous cell carcinoma. And so of those, uh, those non-melanoma skin cancers, oftentimes people will say, you know, I went to the dermatologist, I had this little spot on my cheek and they cut it out and it was a little skin cancer, but it's nothing to worry about. Is that right? So... Basal cell carcinoma, which is the most common, as I mentioned, is typically not a skin cancer that's going to be really a threat to your overall health. The chances of basal cell skin cancer spreading inside the body are minuscule, but it can be locally destructive. I've seen cases of basal cell where it's eroded away the eyelid and invaded into the orbit of the eye, the eyeball. Um, basal cell skin cancers that have eaten away patients' noses. These are obviously the extreme cases. So because in our country we're more aware and um, patients are screened more regularly, when basal cell is picked up at an early stage, it usually is a minor thing that requires some surgical procedure or some type of treatment to eradicate it, and patients have very good results. What about the other kind of non-melanomatous skin cancer, squamous cell? So squamous cell is less common than basal cell, um, about a million cases a year diagnosed. And again, in general, patients with squamous cell have good outcomes. Deaths from squamous cell carcinoma are about 15,000 a year. So when you think about, um, you know, the amount that are diagnosed to that death rate, that's pretty good. But in contrast to basal cell, squamous cell does have the ability to spread to lymph nodes um, or be locally aggressive, invade into other structures outside of the skin in a way that basal cell really does not. And um, there are certain populations that are more at risk for that type of progression. 
particularly patients who are, for example, immunosuppressed because of an organ transplant or because of other medications that they're taking for different conditions that suppress their immune system. And outside of that whole non-melanomatous skin cancer group, there's the whole category of melanomas. Yes. And, you know, melanomas are less frequently diagnosed than the non-melanoma type, but the incidence is increasing. Partly that's due to our increased ability to detect early stage melanomas, but um, the increase in incidence is real. And, you know, there's over 100,000 cases diagnosed every year. I think in 2019, they estimate that that number is going to be somewhere uh, over 150,000. About half of those are the early stage melanomas called in situ. And the survival rate from these type of melanomas is extremely high, over 98%. But when we get to the invasive melanomas, that's where it can become more scary and where we see decreased survival rates. In invasive melanomas that are local, meaning that they have not gone to the lymph nodes, survival is still very good, greater than about 95%. But once it's spread to the lymph nodes or distant metastases, that survival rate drops to about 64% and 23% respectively. So it's pretty precipitous. And so it sounds like for all of these, um, catching this early uh, is really the key to ensuring longevity. It is. And that's why regular skin cancer screens are really important in certain patient populations. So tell us more about that. Who should get screened? How should they get screened? How does that work? So interestingly, the U.S. Preventative Task Force, that is the body that puts out recommendations for cancer screening, does not recommend any routine skin exams for the general population. And so in a way, this might leave someone saying, "Okay, well, do I really need to get a skin exam? But I think that that recommendation comes from the fact that there's susceptible patient populations and less susceptible patient populations. And sometimes it might be hard to know which one you fit into. So, for example, any patient that has a family history of a skin cancer should have an annual skin check by a dermatologist. Whether that skin cancer is non-melanomatous or melanomatous. Yes. And so when you think about that, we know that about one in five Americans are going to be diagnosed with a basal cell every year. So that family history is going to be pretty strong in this country. Um, in addition, if anyone has had a history of a precancer, the typical precancerous lesion that I'm talking about is something called actinic keratosis. They should have a regular skin check by the dermatologist. Patients who have history of tanning bed use, they should have a regular skin check by a dermatologist. It becomes more questionable in patient subtypes, for example, African-American patients, Hispanic patients, patient populations that aren't generally as at risk for these UV-driven skin cancers because they're protected a bit by their skin type. Their need for an annual skin check is more difficult to determine. And typically, I recommend talking to your primary care doctor who can help triage your risk and refer you to a dermatologist if they think it's necessary, 
or to just have a baseline screen with a dermatologist who then can take a detailed medical history, assess your risk, and give you recommendations about what screening protocol would be right for you. So tell us a bit more about how exactly a skin check happens. You've mentioned a couple of times that they should be done by your dermatologist and not necessarily just by your family physician. Tell us what exactly goes into a skin check. So I could walk you through sort of what a skin check would look like if you came into the office. Yeah. And for example, say this is your first time in the office. Right. The first thing that would happen would be that we would take a detailed medical history. And these would include some of the factors that I already mentioned to you about family history, personal history, what medications you're on. These are helping your dermatologist assess your uh, underlying risk profile. And then... um, the dermatologist will likely ask you, is there anything you're concerned about on your skin? And this is a really important part of the screening because we know that many, most melanomas are actually discovered by the patient, something that they realize. And so if a patient says to me something is new or changing on their skin, I take that very seriously. And so when we discuss the lesions you're concerned about, I'll get some history about how long they've been present, if they've been treated before, what type of symptoms you're having. And then based on that information, I'll have an idea in my mind about what kinds of things we might be dealing with. And then we'll actually perform the skin check. And what that involves is you'll be asked to change into a gown. And usually all of your clothing is removed because it's very important to have a complete exam. And the exam will begin usually head to toe. Everyone has sort of a different method, but uh, the dermatologist will look through your scalp, for example, look into your your mouth uh, and examine inside of your mouth. The exam typically will include an exam of your genitalia and of your hands and feet and in between your toes um, for real completeness. And um, sometimes the dermatologist will use different devices to help them in the exam. One of them is called a dermatoscope. And this is essentially a handheld device that has magnification and polarized light. And it helps to highlight certain features of different lesions on the skin that might inform the dermatologist whether this is something that needs a biopsy or it's okay. You know, I think that that's so important that people understand the difference between, you know, I have my husband or my wife look at my skin. They'll let me know if there's any problem versus going to a dermatologist and actually having every centimeter from your scalp all the way to the bottom of your feet um, really examined to see whether there's anything concerning. I agree. But I also think that home exams are very important because... As a dermatologist, we're seeing your skin in one point in time, especially if this is the first exam that you're having. And in terms of detecting skin cancer, particularly the melanoma type, evolution of lesions is very important. And sometimes that's very hard to assess at a static moment in time. So I do train patients how to look at their skin, how to completely examine themselves, including with mirrors to see hard to reach places like the back or to have a spouse look at a patient's back, particularly in men, because the um, in men, most melanomas are diagnosed on the trunk. So on the back is the number one location. And it's many times the spouse that would recognize that lesion. So both are important. 
And so, uh, and you mentioned other places that cancer can appear too, in, in the mouth, under the nails. Tell us about what those would look like. I mean, I think that people may be able to say, well, gee, I, I have a spot on my forearm that looks like it's getting, you know, a little bit bigger over time. But how would they really recognize lesions in other places that they might not look? Yeah, I think you mentioned nails. Um, nail ca- skin cancers can be perplexing even to the dermatologist. The melanoma type of um, skin cancer that appears under the nail, this is, can be a particularly deadly type of melanoma, and it's the type of melanoma that's more often seen in darker skin type populations like African Americans. And sometimes it's obvious it can uh, appear like a pigmented band under the nail, a brown streak that is widening over time, and it can be obvious. And the worrisome factor that we look out for is when that pigmented streak starts spreading onto the skin adjacent to the nail. Mm. This is called Hutchinson's sign. And this is how we can distinguish benign pigmentation in the nails, which is actually pretty common in darker skin population, to a more worrisome pigmented band. But sometimes melanoma has no pigment at all, including under the nail, uh, and can be very difficult to detect. Hmm. And same thing for uh, squamous cell skin cancers, which are... Uh, the nail is another area where we do see these type of skin cancers. It's sometimes associated with the HPV virus, the virus that cause, causes warts around the fingers. And one of the sensitive signs that you'll look for is a change in the nail shape, where instead of being flat, all of a sudden there's a new ridge or an abnormality in the nail plate. And this is usually caused by a lesion growing underneath, disrupting the outgrowth of the nail. Interesting. Well, we're going to learn more about how to detect uh, skin cancers and also potentially how to prevent them right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Swosey. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about pancreatic cancer, which represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfirinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Kathleen Sposey. We're talking about skin cancer and how screening, particularly with a skin exam done by a dermatologist, can be really helpful in finding cancer at its earliest stages. Now, Kathleen, right before the break, you mentioned something that a lot of people might not know, which is that some of these skin cancers are not pigmented. So, 
we're all kind of taught to look for, you know, an asymmetrical spot that's dark or has variegated color and the borders are irregular and it might be expanding and it's over six millimeters, the ABCDs of melanoma. But what about these non-pigmented ones? How do you pick those up? So exactly. You mentioned the ABCDEs, which I think are still very important for the population to be aware of for the traditional pigmented type of melanoma. But for the subset of a melanotic melanoma or unpigmented melanoma, these can be very difficult even for a dermatologist to detect. So again, those screening exams in the office are very important. But there are some principles that, that apply to both the amelanotic type of skin cancers as well as the non-melanoma type of skin cancers that I think could be important to highlight. First of all, if you have any lesion on your skin that bleeds spontaneously, this is a sensitive sign that it should be checked out by your dermatologist. Sometimes you're not even aware of the bleeding, but it's just a lesion that's constantly scabbed. This is something that should be evaluated, and the amelanotic type of melanoma can present this way. The other thing is that um, if a lesion is painful, so if you touch it and it elicits a pain response, that should be evaluated sooner rather than later. And this is seen with squamous cell type of skin cancers a lot. And sometimes it can be a sign that that skin cancer might be involving the nerve, which is a poor prognostic factor in the squamous cell type of skin cancers. So again, important to point out. But like you said, it can be very difficult. And using tools like the dermatoscope to look for certain features like vessels that can appear in a certain pattern. The other tool that we will sometimes use is a woods lamp. This is a black light and it highlights pigmentation, both the an increase in pigmentation or a decrease or absence of. And sometimes melanomas, because they are immunogenic, they uh, elicit a response from the immune system. Sometimes the immune system is triggered to attack that melanoma. And instead of being a brown spot, it's actually a white or depigmented spot because the immune system has attacked it. And so the Woods Lamp exam would help highlight both areas of increased pigmentation and decreased pigmentation. So I think the key message here is that um, the, the importance of screening with a dermatologist. Now, you mentioned that these tests should be done on an annual basis. Starting at what age? So the annual basis, again, is not for everyone. Some patients need more frequent screening. For example, if you have had a melanoma, you're going to be screened three to four times a year in general. And some patients will be screened less. So like I mentioned, having a baseline exam with a board-certified dermatologist, that will be instructive in figuring out whether or not you do need to go once a year or maybe every two years or maybe not at all. For example, patients that are over 90 years old or, you know, the elderly population, they might not need a routine exam every year to detect non-melanoma skin cancers that are unlikely to impact their life expectancy. 
How old should you be when you get that baseline exam, though? Is that something that we should be taking our kids to, or is that something that we wait until we're, you know, in our 40s or 50s, like other cancer screenings? Tell us more about when when should we really be thinking, yep, well, I've got to add in yet another cancer screening into my toolkit? So, yes, certainly I do not think children need to be going. And even in your 20s is probably on the early side, unless you have a history of tanning bed use. I routinely see patients in my practice in their 30s, even in their late 20s, presenting with basal cell skin cancer. And there's a very strong history of tanning bed use in that population, even one to two times, greater than five, certainly. So, Again, if you have that history, maybe earlier, but the peak incidence uh, of the um, non-melanoma type of skin cancer sort of bimodal in the the fifth and sixth decade and then again in like seven, eighth decade. So if you're having a baseline screening in your 30s, I think that would be generally appropriate for most patients. And so let's talk a little bit about some of those risk factors that you mentioned. So tanning was one. And you said even if you've had tanning only once or twice, but certainly if you've had it five times, you're at increased risk. So is there no dose of tanning that you think is safe? (laughs) Well, you're talking to me here who treats skin cancer every day. So no, I don't think there's any type of safe tanning. Um, I do think we have to live our life and be outdoors and using appropriate protective measures is prudent. And these are all things that we sort of know, but even though we know we don't always do. And I really think that fair skin patients should wear sunscreen every single day, part of their routine on their face in particular. And that should be at least 30 or above in, um, you know, unless you're in tropics or extreme areas of sun exposure. 30 or above in SPF. In SPF, sorry. Yes. And, um, you know, trying to limit prolonged activity in the sun in the peak hours between 10 and 2. These are general common sense type of things that you can do to decrease your risk. But even one blistering sunburn as a child increases your risk of skin cancer by 50%. So we really need to start with good sun protection in our kids at an early age. And I think the generation now, of, you know, children, I think they're more aware and there's more advocacy and even legislation that is allowing schools to apply sunscreen to kids, um, which before was not allowed. So I think that we're getting better, but it really has to start at an early age. Um, basal cell in particular is associated with intense intermittent sun exposure, like that type of sun exposure you get on holiday, whereas squamous cell is more cumulative UV exposure. And that goes back to my recommendation of the daily application of uh, sunscreen, because even that walk to your car or walking the dog in the morning or gardening outside, these activities that patients don't really see as being important doses of ultraviolet light, they do add up over time. You know, I think many of us will wear a facial moisturizer that's got a built-in SPF, but don't routinely wear sunscreen um, just on a daily basis. But you think that we we ought to, even if it's not like we're going to the beach, but we're going to walk to work, it's still worth it to wear sunscreen on exposed skin. I do. And you didn't mention, though, that moisturizers that contain 
SPF. If it is SPF 30 or above, that would be sufficient. I think we get into trouble sometimes. Patients tell me it's in their makeup. And with makeup, we're not evenly applying that over our whole, whole face body. and ears. But um, so, but I think a moisturizer is a um, fair option when you're not going to be at the beach or swimming and you need something more um, water resistant, for example. And so you said every day. Does that apply to even in the wintertime when there isn't a whole lot of sun? Yes. So in the winter, it is true that the intensity of the ultraviolet exposure is less. But again, we're talking about cumulative exposure and that daily small exposure over the winter still counts. And I think people tend to be aware that they need sunscreen in the summer, whereas in the winter, it's not top of mind. And certain activities, especially activities in the snow, can really predispose you to sunburn because not only do you have the exposure from UV from above, but it can be reflected off the snow and cause exposure from below. And many of these snow activities are in high altitudes where the uh, UV intensity is increased to begin with. So skiing, snowboarding, these type of winter sports, it's really important to have SPF on. But only on exposed skin. Yes. Yeah. If, you know, for example, we talk about um, the UV protective factor of clothing and a T-shirt is only about a white T-shirt is only about SPF equivalent of 15. But of course, if you're wearing a winter parka, those areas will be safe. You know, one of the things you mentioned was uh, you had a bit of a caveat in terms of fair skinned people. So for people who have a bit of pigment, um, people who are African-American or even Asian or Hispanic, are the recommendations in terms of the amount of uh, SPF that they require or how frequently they need to apply sunscreen different? Yes, in that when you have more endogenous pigment, you have darker pigmentation to your skin, you're not going to be as prone to the negative effects of UV in terms of the mutations that the UV will cause in your skin. You're a bit protected from that. So, however, the aging effects of UV, particularly UVA, is still profound even if you have darker skin. So to prevent aging of the skin, photoaging, which as an aesthetic dermatologist I deal with as well, it is important to wear daily SPF. But it, as I mentioned, the type of skin cancers that you see most commonly in the darker skin population, the what's called acral melanomas, the ones that we mentioned that are on the hands and feet or under the nails, those are not as driven by UV as other types of melanoma. So um, they might not necessarily be protected by sunscreen. So is there anything that we can do to prevent those? Prevention may be hard to say, but by increasing detection and detecting them at earlier stages, that's where we're going to have the biggest impact on morbidity and mortality. What about melanomas that occur in other places that um, are harder to detect. Uh, so uh, people can get melanomas in their eyes. People can get melanomas in genitalia, for example. Uh, presumably, you know, we can't really use sunscreen in our eyes and our, um, our genitalia generally are not sun exposed. So how do we prevent those? Or is that a, 
a thing about early detection too. Yeah, so you mentioned ocular melanoma, which we didn't get into, and that's a very interesting and important subset. And that's where your eye doctor is going to play an important role too in screening that, you know, the dermatologist isn't going to do as well in screening inside your eye. And there, it, it, we do think that UV does play a role in ocular melanomas and wearing sunglasses, for example, that have UV protection can be important um, to help prevent that type of melanoma. But the melanomas that you mentioned that arise in the genitalia, those are more analogous to the acral type that I mentioned before in that the mutation profile is different and probably not UV driven in those areas, which makes sense given the location. So the things we can do, we can we can certainly try to prevent the cancers that we can with sunscreen and avoiding tanning. What about other things? Do other things have an impact in terms of skin cancer like smoking or alcohol? Smoking and squamous cell carcinoma there is a strong correlation there. And so uh, smoking cessation is very important in patients uh, that have a history of squamous cell carcinoma. And we do talk to our patients about that um, when they're diagnosed. Alcohol, not not as much to my knowledge um, as a risk factor, but smoking certainly. And so then there are the things we can't do anything about, our family history, which also increases our risk, right? Yes. And so there are known genetic syndromes that are associated with both the melanoma and the non-melanoma type of skin cancer. And that is usually elucidated from a detailed family history, and you might be sent to a geneticist to help um, assess your risk. But even just a genetic history in your family without being tied to a specific gene that we can identify. Yes, of course, we can't necessarily do anything to change that, but it does, again, modulate how often you're going to be screened. And for the genetic syndromes associated with um, basal cell carcinoma, there are some specific treatments that you might be considered for. Dr. Kathleen Swozy is an assistant professor of dermatology in the section of cutaneous oncology and dermatologic surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.